0: morning, beloved. My name is David Cassidy. I'm the lead pastor here at Spanish River Church. Let's be seated together. We're going to take some time to pray. A great human tragedy is unfolding with our near neighbors to the south at Surfside. You've followed the news stories and the number of fatalities and missing, the numbers of injured And the grief and anxiety, the trauma that is in the hearts of all of those that surround this is at a terrible, terrible level. And we are called to love our neighbors. We can do that in a couple of ways this morning. Uh, The first one is by pausing to pray for all of those who are in pain and to be in solidarity with them in that. These are our neighbors, our friends who have, you know, even planted churches in that area. And they're our partners. But in addition to that, we can help in practical ways. We've established an emergency fund, which you can give to, and our diaconate is going to coordinate with other churches in the area. And together, we're going to make sure that needed aid gets into the hands of the people who need it so above and beyond your regular giving here at the church if God puts it in your heart to contribute this week please do so you can go to the church website spanishriver.com and uh, forward slash uh, disaster fund you can select disaster fund and contribute to that this week but let's all of us whether we're contributing financially or not lift our voices to God in prayer Let's join with others across this area who are doing so as the church comes together to comfort those who mourn in the power of the gospel. We're going to take just a moment in silent prayer so each of you can, with your words from your heart, lift our friends up. And then I'll lead us in prayer. So, let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, you whose mercies are new every morning, we come before you now for our neighbors who are in pain. We especially pray for those who are grieving the loss of those who have perished in this tragedy. We pray for those who are injured and face lengthy recoveries. We pray for those this morning who are anxious because they do not know where those that they love may be. And Lord, we thank you for all those who are stepping into this place of challenge and pain. We thank you for first responders. We thank you for emergency workers, for EMTs, for firefighters, for police officers. We thank you for physicians, nurses, doctors, surgeons. We bless you for them and the gift you've made them to be in our lives. We pray, Lord, for the great gift of your presence to be with all those who call on your name and that you will surround those in pain with people who are faithful and who will bring them your mercy and kindness. Lord, we pray that you would direct our hearts in our contributions to this matter and that you would strengthen all those today, Lord, who seek the good of the city. Let your name be exalted, God of all comfort and grace. In the middle of despair and pain, you who are the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, Lord Jesus, good shepherd who laid down your life, be near all those who mourn. Strengthen all who are weak. Comfort all who are in pain. You are our consolation in every sorrow. And it is in your matchless name that we pray, doing so as we turn to your word, longing to hear your voice, the voice of the shepherd calling us, instructing us, informing us, and not only giving us information, but by your word granting us transformation so that we might walk in your ways. And so let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you for praying with me. Thank you for your contributions in advance for that great work. And I want to invite you this morning now to turn with me To Ephesians chapter 2, this letter that Paul wrote to a congregation of people that called home a city not unlike our own. And we've titled this series, Beyond Our Imagination. That's a phrase taken from chapter 3 of this letter where he says, God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond everything we could ever ask or imagine. And that is particularly true when it comes to the gospel that God has done something incredible, unimaginable, something that inspires in us wonder. And that's why Paul, caught up in this wonder, begins his letter, not just with a signature, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, but with an anthem of praise. Blessed be God. You can feel his heart overwhelmed with gratitude for the wonderful, astonishing mercy that's been shown to him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And he goes on to relate how God chose us and gave us. This great destiny to be adopted as his own children into his family. And he says, blessed be God the Son in whom we have redemption through his blood. And blessed be the Holy Spirit who has sealed us for the day of redemption. So this great Trinitarian anthem of wondrous praise and thanksgiving that he opens the letter with. And then he goes into prayer. So just as we've opened with worship this morning and then prayed together, that's how this letter opens. And Paul falls on his knees and he says, I'm always giving thanks for you and I'm praying that God the Father will give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God and that you will know the hope of his calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance and in the saints and that he says the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. And then he goes on in the last part of that prayer, he says, this power which God is sending into our lives is in accordance with, in agreement with the same power that God used when he raised Jesus from the dead. He said that the same power that God exercised when he raised his son from the dead, when he was ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father, he said that same power is at work in you. And then Paul does something amazing. He takes that story in that prayer of Jesus' death and burial, and resurrection, and ascension, and enthronement. That story that belongs to Jesus, and in chapter 2, he says, that story is now your story. And that is what makes all the difference. I want you to read it with me here in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. You were dead. Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. It is not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. And this is the word of the Lord. Whoa, yeah. Man, do you read a passage like that and something inside of you goes, glory. Well, you know, it's, we have the peril of familiarity when you deal with a text like this. If you've grown up in church This might have been some of the first bits of scripture you ever sat down with and really looked at, and really studied. You could have looked at it so much you kind of go, yeah, I know Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, those are the first verses along with 2 Corinthians 5, 17. My dad ever made me memorize. I had to set those in, in my heart, hide them in my heart. And I've known these verses since childhood, and so when you read verses like this, you can just kind of go through them and think, "Yeah, I know this stuff. I know this message. You know, I, I, I get this. The peril of familiarity can rob us of the wonder that is in this text. I experienced that when I lived in London, the peril of familiarity. I would um, take Tony in for her job in Sloan Street, drop her off at the shop, and then I would go to the meetings that I had up in central London. Um, and, and so I'd drop her off at the shop, you know, I'd come over the, the Battersea Bridge, go down into Knightsbridge, drop her off, and then I'd head up the road, and I'd go in, you know, into Victoria, and then around the corner, past Buckingham Palace, up the, you know, up Victoria Street, into Parliament Square. There's the uh, big towers of Westminster Abbey and, and on, the, on the left, and there's the House of Commons and the House of Lords and Big Ben on the right and the Thames going by. And then I'd go up Whitehall and past Scotland Yard and Downing Street and into Trafalgar Square and try to find a parking space outside of St. Martin in the fields where a lot of my meetings took place. And I did that. That's just the daily commute, right? And I noticed one day as I was going through the daily commute that I'd I'd see like Gaggles of tourists all standing there with their cameras and they're taking pictures of all this stuff. I'm just driving by. They had saved up and spent tons of money for the once-in-a-lifetime moment to take that picture of that place. I just drive by it like it's no big deal. Oh, yeah, the queen. Okay, right, seen her. (laughs) We can lose the wonder of it all because we're so familiar with the beauty of it all. And sometimes we have to stop and see it through a fresh set of lenses. And I'm hoping the Lord will help us do that today as we discover that the story of Jesus, dead, buried, raised, ascended, seated, has become our story too. And that makes all the difference. John Delaney, congressman from the state of Maryland, ran for president a couple of years ago. A lot of people did. He lost like every, lots and lots of other people. But I remember hearing him interviewed talking about the immigration of his grandfather from England. So John Delaney's grandfather from England came over in 1923 along with eight of his siblings and his mother. 15,000 people a day were disengorged from those ships at Ellis Island, and they came through in the Six-second examination that was normally afforded. Everybody coming through, checking to see if they were physically able to come into the United States. And all of his siblings came through and his mother came through. But when they got to John DeLady's grandfather, an 11-year-old boy at the time, they said, you're not coming in. Because he failed the physical exam. He was missing an arm. He was a one-armed boy. He would lost that arm in a farming accident. And so while all the siblings went through and mom went through, he was detained. And he would be sent back on a ship as soon as possible back to England. Can you imagine the terror in his mother's heart? The fear in that little boy's heart as he's separated from his siblings, he's separated from his mom, and he's got, he thought, entrance into a new world and he's gonna be sent back, and he's gonna be sent back alone. You had the right of appeal. You could appear before a judge, but everybody knew there was really no point in appeal. That that disability meant that he would not be permitted in. If you had that kind of disability, you would not be allowed in. The next day, he appeared before the judge in court. Family sat down. And then he was brought into the courtroom. And then the judge who would decide his fate came in and took his seat at the bench, and the little boy, 11 years old, was brought up before the judge, and he looked up at the judge, and the judge had one arm. (laughs) And the judge looked at him, and he looked at the judge, and the judge looked around the courtroom, and he said, I think everybody in here knows where this is going. And he said, young man, welcome to the United States. Go and make something of your life. Can you imagine what was going on in his mom's heart when she saw the one-armed judge take his seat at the bench? The joy, the inexpressible joy, that her boy's story was the judge's story and that was his entrance into a new life? My friend, what's happened in Jesus is that the judge who controls all the entrances into our new life, he made our story his story so that his story could become our story. He has identified with us in our death, in our despair, in our destruction. And this catastrophe of ours is a comprehensive total catastrophe. Look how Paul describes it here in verse one. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. That was a phrase that was well known in Ephesus. That was a description of the chief of the demons that all of the magicians and spiritists would give obedience to. It's another way of saying the devil himself, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, Jews and Gentiles alike, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So in other words, Every single aspect of who we are was impacted by the catastrophe of the ancient rebellion of the human race against God himself. There isn't any single dimension of who we are that was left without impact. Physically, we're dead. We die. Intellectually, we are impacted. Our thoughts are not correct. We make not only misjudgments, but we lie to ourselves about things. Our thinking is affected by the fall. Our bodies are affected by the fall. We are affected not only physically and intellectually, but volitionally. Our wills are twisted so that we seek things which are not in keeping with what is actually best for us. And we follow passionate desires which lead us to devastation physically intellectually, volitionally, emotionally, every single aspect of who we are as human beings is dead. That's the word Paul uses, dead. Now there are three different views of the way humans are. There's one view that's entirely optimistic. I'm okay, you're okay. There's another view that says, we're sick, we just need a good physician. You need a good life coach. You just need... To get better, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Listen to some good motivational talks. Do a DIY salvation project. But that's not the way Paul viewed it. Paul had a more comprehensive view of the fall, the real catastrophe that had taken place, and he uses this word, dead. You were dead. You were dead. Now if you're dead... Can the dead raise themselves? No. I think a lot of people think Christian ministry, gospel ministry, the ministry of the church is kind of like tossing out a life preserver to people who are drowning. People are not drowning. People are dead. They're corpses. If you toss out a life preserver, you may hit them, but they're not going to grab it because they're dead. If I go and preach in a morgue this morning which is not unlike some churches, but if I went and preached in a morgue this morning, and I got to the end of the invitation with all the bodies stretched out in front of me, and I said, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you wanna give your life to Jesus, raise your hand, and a hand went up, what would you call that? You'd call that scary, that's what you'd call that. You'd say, that's a miracle, that's exactly right, but that's how dead we are. It is a miracle that anybody comes alive, it's the same miracle that raised Jesus from the dead. He was dead. God raised him from the dead. You are dead and your trespasses and sins. Dead. The dead cannot raise themselves. We have no. Look, look, the, the dry, dusty, deserted bones on the desert floor that Ezekiel saw did not get up and dance and choose their own partners. They only came alive because Ezekiel spoke the word and called for the wind. And when the breath of God and the word of God hit the bones, that's when they came alive. And that's what happens to you and me if we come alive in Jesus. The gospel of God and the spirit of God combine down in our hearts to raise us from the dead. That's what salvation is. It's resurrection. That's why, that's why Paul begins to draw attention to God's decisive intervention. Look at what he says next. verse four, but God. but God. you are dead, but God. Probably two of the most wonderful words ever penned in human history right there. but God. you were dead. We're the one-armed boy, and who walks in? The one-armed judge, but God, but God. And then he describes God, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Even then, he has made us alive. He has resurrected us. He has made us alive together with Christ. And then there's a a, a sort of dash there in your text. And there's this parenthetical statement that Paul is introducing here at this point to really emphasize the point, by grace you have been saved. Because resurrection is all of grace. It is not by our own merits. It's not by our own strength. Salvation is not something that we can earn. It's not something we deserve. The dead cannot get bonus points. One of the great pastors in our area, Dr. James Kennedy, who was at Coral Ridge for so many years, crafted a wonderful program that I went through when I was 13 years old called Evangelism Explosion. Many of you have probably done that training. And there's a diagnostic question in it it's meant to kind of show us where we are in regard to this. And the first diagnostic question is this, uh, or the second one, if you were to die today and stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? A friend of mine was practicing with his eight-year-old daughter. If you were to die today and stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And she said, because I'm dead. Where else am I going to get you? All dogs go to heaven, right? I mean, here we go. He was like, I, uh, I got more work to do here with my daughter. Well, we always have work to do because at the other end of the spectrum, there are those of us who think that if we will be good enough somehow, we can balance out the bad. That somehow we can do things which commend us to God so that God looks at us and he goes, okay, we'll let you in. David Nicholas, who was the pastor here, the founding pastor for so many years, sat down with a man in in our church, wonderful leader, this was years ago, who wanted to join the church. He'd been coming along for four years, and he wanted to join the church. And so Pastor Nicholas sat down with him to do a little interview, and he asked him that question, why should God let you into his heaven? What would you say? And he said, well, I mean, I've, I've been coming for four years. He said, I'm a pretty good guy. I try my best. I, I pray. I've been going to some Bible studies. What do you think the pastor said? Do you think pa- what do you think Pastor Nicholas said? Do you think Pastor Nicholas said, good answer. You know he did not. He looked at him and he said, you are not ready to join this church. Because the only person you mentioned in your answer is me, is, is I. I. But salvation is not by I. Salvation is by Christ. Christ alone. It's Christ alone. That's why it's by grace. The dead cannot raise themselves. Christ must raise us. He's the one who pays the price for our sin. There is nothing for us to contribute. If I were to be raised from the dead, the only thing I could contribute to that is the corpse. That's it. Would we dare to stand beneath the cross of Jesus with him hanging there? Bleeding and dying in our place and look up at Jesus and say, Jesus, that's amazing, so great, good effort. Now here's my part. No, you would never do that. You would stand beneath the cross of Jesus. And you would say in the, great, in the words of the great hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, come to thee for Grace. Foul, I to the fountain, fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Because salvation is by grace. It's by grace. It's God dramatically, decisively intervening. We were dead, but God. And What does that mean? The God who is rich in mercy, who loves us, makes us alive. How does that come into our lives? Well, it comes in through faith. Ephesians 2, look at it again, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It, the faith, is the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. My friends, we are in worse shape than we could have ever imagined, and we're more loved than you could ever know. We who are dead have been loved and were loved to life, and it's all by grace, and that is received in our lives by faith. And then Paul says, this faith that we have, this faith that we have is itself a gift. It's not part of our personality. Faith is not something which is constitutionally part of the human race. This is a supernatural gift given by the Holy Spirit through the gospel that arises in a dead person's heart that allows them to receive the benefits of what Christ has done at the cross. That's what faith is. Faith is a gift from God. It's not something you or I have as part of our personality. God does not by by any way, look at our faith and go, oh, your faith is really good. It's not like God gets a hold of your faith and looks at it and goes, but we got some good faith here. Look at this faith. No, the faith in Jesus that any person has, has its origin, not in their soul, but in God's heart, who bestows that gift on them so that they can receive everything that Jesus has done. But what does that faith consist of? What does it really mean to believe? Well, well over the years, Christians have reflected on faith, and they've noticed that in this remarkable diamond, there are facets which reflect the love and the mercy of God. I'll just share some of the composite elements of that. It's some theological work. You, you can re- do some theological work with me. I know, I know, I know. You're going, oh, theology. I don't like theology. I've only had one cup of coffee. Don't do theology with me. You know, if all the theologians in all the world would lay, were laid end to end, they still wouldn't reach a conclusion. I know, I know. I I heard I heard a a theologian described as a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't there, (laughs) and finding it. Okay, I got it. And I know many of you are only one cup of coffee into this, and it's hard work. But do it. Do the work. Here's faith. What does it mean to have faith? Because faith is not just agreeing with a set of facts, though the facts are important. The first part of faith is the facts. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is a Savior. Jesus Christ died on the cross cross, in your place for your sins. He bore in his body on the cross our sins, the full penalty and weight of everything we had coming to us as dead treasonous rebels against God. He took it all upon himself. And when he died, that stuff died with him. Those are the facts. He was raised from the dead. He's at the right hand of the Father. And if you say, I believe that, I say, good. But that's not what saving faith is because the demons believe that. The demons know it. They believe it. But James says the demons believe and tremble. But that's why the second aspect of faith, after the facts, comes glad acceptance, so that when you hear that Jesus Christ is Lord. When you hear that he died and rose again, that he's coming again, when you hear that, in your heart, you rejoice. You're like the mother of that 11-year-old boy when she saw the one-armed judge take his seat and she heard him say, your boy is coming in. In her, how do you think that mother, how do you think that mother felt? What erupted in her joy, thanksgiving, tears running down her cheeks, her family's united, they're going into a whole new life, glory. That's what, that's what, that's a dimension of faith. So it's the facts. And then there's the glad assent to those facts. Not trembling at those facts, gladness that it's true. But there's a third dimension. And it's this. It's putting the full weight of your life into the hands of Jesus. Here's the word, resting on Jesus. An old illustration of this would be if I hauled a chair out here, and I put a chair here, Nice, big, cozy chair. And I said, that's a chair. Do you agree with me it's a chair? Yeah, it's a chair. Do you believe it would hold you if you sat in it? Yeah, I believe it would hold me if I sat in it. Is it holding you? Well, no. Well, why? Because I'm not in it. For the chair to do its holding, you have to do your sitting. You have to sit down in the chair you have to trust the chair to hold your weight faith is not only knowing what jesus has done and who he is but glad- and gladly acknowledging that it's true but taking your life and saying I'm no longer going to be the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. I am going to take the whole weight of my life, and I'm going to place it in the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. I'm going to rest in what Jesus has done, and I'm never going to boast and say I deserve heaven. I know I don't. I deserve hell. I would bust it wide open. I am going to rest in what Jesus has done, that what he said on the cross it is finished, it really is. And I'm going to trust him for the rest of my life. I'm just going to put the whole weight of my life down on him. You can't earn it, you can't buy it, you don't deserve it, but you can trust him for it. That's what faith is, trusting Jesus, full weight of your life in his hands. You know, Jeff Bezos has done okay for a guy selling books out of his garage. His net worth on Friday was $201 billion. That's after a divorce, just saying. He's also going into space. He's created a craft called Blue Origin. It's going to launch in July. And over the last year, he auctioned a seat to go with him. You could buy a seat. And here's what the news story said. Buy the seat to fly into suborbital space with Jeff Bezos and his brother. You will experience a few moments of weightlessness. And then you will parachute back down to the... Earth. He auctioned off the seat. It went for 28 million bucks. I really wanted in. But I was pre-approved, only up to 27.3 mil. I don't know, I just couldn't quite get there. 28 million bucks to go into suborbital to get a seat in Blue Origin with Bezos. For a few moments of weightlessness, you could get that at Disney. Um, fly into suborbital space with Bezos and come back down? My friend, you can go to heaven not with Bezos but with Jesus and it costs nothing, it costs him everything. You can be seated with him in heavenly places. What are you waiting for? And no amount of money can, it's not up for auction, you can't buy it, you don't deserve it. By grace you have been saved. You were dead, but God, God did it. (laughs) And then he says, and now not only could your works not save you, you have become God's work. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That word for workmanship is an old word that in the ancient world was employed to describe great works of art, magnificent paintings and sculptures, remarkable gardens, and Homeric poetry. You were dead, and now you are a work of art crafted by the hands of the Almighty. You are His image, you are His story. You are his poetry in the world. You are dead, but God. Not by your works, but now you're his. And he's going to tell his story to the whole world through the mercy he has poured into you and through you. And all you have to do is sit down in the chair and put the full weight of your life in the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. Won't you do that? If you've never given your life to Jesus, do it today. Put the weight of your life, the past you can't change, the future you don't know about, the present that causes you anxiety, put the full weight of it on Jesus. If you're a prodigal and you've been in a distant country, come home. And if you're a Christian who's tired and weary and you wonder if the grace that saved you Is enough to keep you remember but God when you were dead made you alive and the grace that resurrected you is the grace that will get you all the way home let's pray gracious Father by grace you have saved us not by anything we have done but by everything Jesus has done Lord Strengthen us to be your servants today. And we pray for all those who do not yet know you to come to know you. We pray for those who've been in a distant country and need to come home, to come joyfully into the embrace of the Father who will shower them with kisses. We pray for all who are weak to be made strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And we thank you that this is something we could never purchase. It's something we could never earn nothing we could ever deserve. You have done it all. You have done exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ever ask or imagine. And you did it in Jesus when you made our story His story. And you made His story ours. Amen. Amen, beloved. Isn't it wonderful Thanks be to God.